0: Section 12 of On Being Negro in America by J. Saunders Redding. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 12. Perhaps I make too much of this, and perhaps I am overwrought and unreasonable about it. I must confess that there flit across my mind like stones skipped on the surface of water, only to sink into it. Thoughts of my son's, there are moments when i am sentimental enough to hope that history is a necessary progress toward better things and that frustrations of the human spirit grow less and less i know better but i have such hopes when my sons are involved and i am inclined to support them intemperately it does not serve merely to shrug one's shoulders and carp about the psychic traumas that bedevil american man least it did not do seven years ago when my older son was eight and my younger not yet born and now that my younger is himself almost seven it still will not do argument does not exactly serve either although i think i argue for something eminently sane it is simplicity i argue the substitution of spontaneous instinctive responses for the deliberate responses based as i have said above on unchanging ideas and ideals it seems to me that the old rules evoked as they were out of the utmost confusion of morality and social expedience and deliberate ignorance are not only unnecessarily complicated for modern times and people but they are progressively unsuitable to modern ways of thinking to the advance of knowledge to technology and surely everyone will allow this to one-worldness Make the rules simple enough, and we can play the hardest game. What happened to my older son, and also to my younger son just recently, though not in circumstances so distressing, nor in details so graphic, was that while he was playing the game with all the exuberance of an eight-year-old, somebody complicated up the rules. I remember distinctly how it happened. For several weeks, while my wife was with child, it was my unaccustomed duty to make the marketing, as it is so quaintly put in the upper south our market was a co-op on the highway just outside town in the heart of one of those neat and monotonous residential communities that seemed to spring up everywhere in the nineteen forties my wife loved the place was convenient its stock was excellent and its prices generally somewhat lower than in the chain groceries besides it had a negro a colleague and friend on its board of directors and as a second novel attraction, it employed several negroes, at least one as clerk and another as butcher. The co-op's atmosphere, unlike that of the chains, was friendly, warm, leisurely. My wife supposed it was because of the neighborhood, a better-than-average middle-class neighborhood, segregated, of course, of aircraft designers, engineers, and other technological experts, and a scattering of armed service personnel. No one lower than a lieutenant in the Navy, or a Captain in the army, it seemed, from the various military installations close by. As one of the charter stockholders, I was determined to love the place too. Friday was market day. Until her condition prevented her going, my wife's eager companion on these expeditions was our son. Sometime in the spring, he had struck up a friendship at the co op, and he anticipated its weekly renewal with pleasurable excitement the first time i took him there i saw the revival of the fraternity with quickened heart my son burst through the door ahead of me stopped looked down the first aisle fresh fruits and vegetables ran to the second and looked and then suddenly let out an indian whoop reggie and got one for an answer conway and then i saw a handsome dark-haired dark-eyed boy of about conway's age break from the side of a young negro girl and come bursting up the aisle between the high stacked shelves of brightly packaged foods toward my son. They stood looking at each other for a moment, then they came together, each with an arm around the shoulder of the other, and exploded off to play outside among the cars until market was made. I looked at the uniform negro girl, and she smiled, and I smiled, and that was that. It was that way for four or five weeks, Conway and Reggie met each other with what seemed the force of projectiles and went skyrocketing off. Leaving the market, I would find them outside, hot and happy, playing at some impossible game. Then one Friday, Reggie—we never learned his last name—was not there with a negro maid. His guardian this time was a man, a tall, handsome person, about forty, I judged, who, in spite of the Phi Beta Kappa key slung across his flat stomach, looked outdoorsy and virile. The boys came together as usual, and went outside as usual. But the man's marketing must have been nearly done, for before I could finish picking out the heaviest, juiciest oranges, Conway was back with me again. Where's Reggie? I asked him. He had to go, he said. His daddy was in a hurry. But already he was looking forward to the next week. The uniformed maid was with Reggie again the next week, but this time when Conway let out his customary whoop, there was no vocal answer. Reggie turned. It seemed to me with momentary eagerness, but there was no yell and rush. He approached very slowly. He was smiling weakly, but that smile died as he came, perhaps sensing that something was wrong. Conway himself now hesitated. "'What's the matter?' he asked Reggie. "'Come on, man, let's go. Don't you want to play?' "'I can't play with you,' Reggie said. "'What's the matter? Are you sick?' Conway wanted to know. I just can't play with you anymore, Reggie said. Conway moved a fraction closer to me, clutched the handle of the food cart I was pushing. The maid stood at some distance, pretending not to watch. The pleasant-voiced, pleasant-faced shoppers of the neighborhood flowed around us. Other children, younger, skittered, and yelled up and down the aisles. The compacted odors of fresh pastry, of ground coffee, of fruits and vegetables, and the colors of all these were as ever, but a chill was beginning to form around my heart. Before Conway asked the next question, I knew the answer that was coming. I did not know the words of it, but I knew the feel, the iron that he would not be prepared for, the corrosive rust that it would make in his blood, and that, unless I was skillful, as my father was not, I could never draw off. At that moment— No, before the moment of the answer, I wanted to pick Conway up and hold him hard against me and ward off the demoralizing blow that might be struck for a lifetime. But I could not forfend if even by grasping my son by the hand and walking off in another direction, I was transfixed. Why? Reggie scowled then, a grimace that was not really ugly yet, because it was associated only with words and not with feeling. That would come later, and the word would be made flesh, and the flesh would be his forever. Now the scowl was only imitation. Because you're a nigger, that's why, Reggie said. Conway looked at me wonderingly, not feeling hurt, as they say a man knowing himself shot but still without pain will look with surprise. I'm better than you, Reggie said, because my father said so. You are not, Conway said but I thought he shrank a little against me. No, son, he isn't, I said. I am so too, Reggie said, looking at both of us. Words were beginning to arouse emotion and link with emotion. The sneer was no longer imitation. He stood bearing his weight on his left foot, his hands in the pockets of his khaki shorts, the whiteness of him showing in a streak just below the hairline, The rest of him, bare trunk, bare legs, tanned almost to the color of my son. No, son, I said, as much to the one as to the other. I think I felt sorry for Reggie, too. I do now, at any rate, thinking back. You're not, Conway said, and straightened. My daddy says you aren't. You don't go to my school. You don't go to my church. You don't go to the movies I go to. I bet you never even seen Tim Holt, he put in parenthetically, and that's because you're not good enough. Ya, yeah, ya, yeah, Reggie said. Niggers work for us. Niggers work for us. You're a nigger, and Trixie's a nigger, and Trixie works for us. It was a shrilling sing-song. Ya, yeah, ya, yeah, nigger, nigger. Go peddle your papers, nigger. With this, he ran off, back, I suppose, to Trixie, who worked for him because she was a nigger. Conway did not cry, but in his eyes was the look of a wound, and I knew how it could grow, become infected, and pump its poison to every tissue, to every brain cell. He stayed close to me while I made market. On the way home, he said, savagely, I hate this car. It did not seem like any kind of entree to what I knew I must talk about, and the sooner the better. When what happened to him happens it makes a nasty wound which demands immediate attention. You want a knife to do the job quickly, deftly, cleanly but the only instruments in the surgery kit are words. So when I wanted to know what was wrong with the car and why he hated it, and he said, Why can't we have a good car, a new car, with a radio and a bigger one like Reggie's? I tried to explain to him that it was wartime, that cars were scarce and prices high, and that in order to get a new car you had to do something a little underhanded, something that was not much different from stealing or cheating did reggie's father steal i wouldn't say that i said but i wouldn't put it past him he's not a good man how do you know you don't know him do you no i said but i don't have to know him to know he's not a good man i put it as simply as i could i told him that parents are frequently reflected in their children i made him laugh a little by reminding him of the time when he was six he had acutely embarrassed his mother and me by telling one of our friends I think you have store-bought teeth, which was exactly what he had heard me say about the friend. Those things Reggie said today, his father said to him. That's how I know Reggie's father is not a good man. He wasn't telling the truth, was he? No, I said, shaking my head. I mean about him being better. No, I answered. Then why can't I go to his school and to his movies? This was the deeper infection and i did not know how to deal with it words were poultices to seal the infection in i could recall them from my own childhood in answer to a why for children are not born with answers words spoken by my parents my teachers my friends words could seal in the infection and seal in also the self that might never break through again except with extreme luck but i had no choice save to use them i told them about prejudice No one has ever made the anatomy of prejudice simple enough for children. And the reason you don't go to Reggie's school, I remember saying, is because there are people like Reggie's father. It's all complicated up, Conway answered. It was a relief to laugh at his child's expression, but I noticed he was not laughing, and at home some minutes later, when I finished storing the groceries in the pantry, I found him pressed against his mother's rounded bosom. Crying without restraint, but even that did not end it. He cried it all out, his mother said. She was wrong. Seven years afterward, in the late spring of nineteen fifty, we had a letter from the headmaster of Conway's New England preparatory school. We had been unable to reach him. He seems to prefer to be alone and will not participate even in those activities for which he has undoubted talents. Naturally, this attitude has given us serious concern. For an important part of our educational program is training in citizenship and cooperative living. Perhaps there is only a slight connection, but I would be hard to convince. End of section 12